This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. The longer I've thought about this, the less I've come to any kind of understanding of what happened yesterday. Here's what I mean by that. Yesterday at City Hall, well, it wasn't at City Hall. City Hall is being renovated. Yesterday, City Council spent hours deliberating and debating about whether they wanted to ask the province to allow the HSR to run the LRT. Now, that had seemed like it was going to be dead on arrival because a lot of things have been going on and councillors had basically been saying, yeah, that's probably not what we're going to be able to do because of what would be involved in that. Nonetheless, they were still discussing then that and a few other things that followed, which was basically formulating some demands or some insistences about how the province or Metrolinks would handle the LRT within the city. But there was a catch that became apparent in time. And some people I think were catching on to this before city council was if the city isn't going to run the thing, if the city's not going to operate the thing, what say does the city have in how it's operated? That came up quite a ways down the road here to discuss this. uh, A guy who has sat around the council table. He sat around uh, Queens Park as well. He's been an MPP. He's been a city councillor. Brad Clark joins us. Brad, how are you tonight? I am doing fantastic. How about yourself? Sir? Excellent. And Merry Christmas to your family. Same to you, sir. They sat around yesterday, and this is what I don't understand. City council sat around yesterday for at least a couple hours debating all these things about what they would insist upon, what they would demand from Metrolinks or the province before councillor Judy Partridge asked if the city was even in a position to make these kind of demands, if we're not going to run the thing, what right, what legal footing do we have to demand things from the province? And they were quickly told, no, you don't really, you can make requests, but you are really in no position to make a demand of anyone. Shouldn't this kind of thing have been clarified right off the bat to pave the way, pardon the pun, but pave the way towards a little more of a clear conversation? Uh, one would think so, yes. Uh, and it was equally surprising that um, the councillors were seemingly unaware that that was the case. Now, all of this started, remember, this this goes back, they, they started talking about public versus private, and should uh, a private consortium be running the LRT, and so there was a push by ATU 107 to um, keep it within the powers and authority of the city of Hamilton under the HSR. And we, okay, and we know, I I certainly understand why the union took the position it took. We understand the union has a a vested interest in this. And I know that there has been lots of talk about whether HSR should do this. But again, leading into this meeting, it had seemed already that that was going to be dead on arrival, that HSR running LRT. It wasn't going to last. So who then, Brad, you've sat around that table. Whose responsibility would it have been, you know, to have said, you know, we can make some suggestions, but we really are not in a position of strength here. So let's not spend a whole lot of time making demands that have no weight. Is that legal? Is that staff? Is that counselors? Who should have been making that announcement or clarifying that? Well, I, I would have expected that counselors who were uh, proponents of one position or another uh, would have been seeking the advice of senior staff and legal counsel. And... Uh, it, it appears, at least appears from where we're sitting, Scott, that that was not the case, and they went through this entire meeting without actually someone saying, well, can we really ask this of Metrolinks? 
it kind of in 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 hindsight in retrospect it kind of made the entire discussion seem certainly superfluous but also a little ridiculous didn't it uh futile for sure <laughs> uh you know they they could have simply got to the point uh, and my point early on in, in, in this discussion was simply there is a collective agreement between the HSR, the City of Hamilton, and ATU-107. And in that collective agreement, it says ATU-107 has the legal right to be the bargaining agency for all new lines of transit. So then what the city should have done, and although over the last eight years many questions were asked about it, it was never put to Metrolink that they should be uh, provided uh, the the collective agreement, and they and Metrolink should be advising the bidders that this collective agreement exists because there is the potential for successor rights, meaning that ATU could argue that whoever is going to run LRT, they should be the union. And, but so the whole point of this is at the end of the day, I hate that phrase, but I'm going to use it. At the end of the day, when this is all, everyone's done all their talking, they can come forward to whatever they want to Metrolinks and say, we demand this. And Metrolinks can just turn around and go, mm, no. And there's nothing they can do about it. Yes. It, it, I mean, realistically, it should have simply been that the city of Hamilton was providing advice um, and perhaps a caveat to Metrolinks that they should advise upon full disclosure any bidders in the RFP that there is a collective agreement with ATU-107 and that there may be a challenge for successor rights. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Chatting with Brad Clark, former city councillor, former MPP, about a council meeting yesterday in which the city councillors were discussing whether to let HSR run LRT but then when it was clear that wasn't going to happen, I didn't really get what the rest of it was all about because, Brad, it seems as though once they had determined that they were not going to ask for this and the demands kept coming and everything else, it seemed to me like it was basically just a whole lot of political performance art at that point. We, we can't do anything, but boy, we're going to make it look like we're really doing something. We're going to look like we're taking a strong stand. Yeah, they, I mean, once it became clear that they had no authority over Metrolinks or Project Co., which is the, the consortium that would ultimately be building the LRT, uh, they, they started to try to scramble and find some way or means to actually justify what they had been doing for the last 10 hours. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they literally could have said, we demand that all LRT cars be pink with portraits of Bozo the Clown on them. I mean, for all that matters, like it was as, there was nothing after that that really was impactful, I didn't think. And yes, as you say, it kept going. And this brings me to what you and I talked about, I don't know, two, three, four weeks ago. You had talked about the fact that we were entering into election silly season and boy, I, that is the first thing that came to mind when this meeting was going on, that we have now, I think all the counselors, Brad, probably simultaneously had the light bulb go on over their head that, oh, <laughs> this meeting means nothing pretty much now, but boy, now's my chance to get some headlines or get notice or what, what was it? What, I mean, is this exactly what you were talking about by silly season? It's a pretty good example of what silly season can, can cause. Silly season for, for our listeners is a phrase that I coined uh, almost 13 years ago. 
that really describes the run-up to an election. So six to ten months before an election, whether federal, provincial, or municipal, uh, the incumbents and um, wannabe candidates start ramping up uh, hyperbolic statements and partisan statements and do everything they can to get their name in the paper uh, to justify their re-election or election. And, and that's kind of what happened yesterday. It, it, it started to become um, more about the headlines and, and how do I save face after we've spent this long talking about something that we really have no authority over. So it's all part of the dance. It was part of, I want to make sure that when it comes to me having to put out a brochure or whatever, I can say, you know what? I fought for the unions. I demanded that we fight for the unions or whatever else, what other point you might've had in this thing. Well, exactly. So if you're pro union, then you would say, listen, I gave it my best shot. We worked hard to make sure that the ATU 107's rights were respected. Um, although in law, ATU 107's rights are actually in law. So, they have an opportunity to argue successor rights at the Ontario Labor Relations Board now, and the city of Hamilton didn't have to do anything to allow that to happen. Or they could certify the union, uh, failing that. They can argue to, to try to certify that, that particular uh, worker group. Uh, so really, the city of Hamilton, um, if they were just talking about making sure Metrolinx was aware about the collective agreement, it could have been a very short meeting. Now, there's no, I, I want to be clear, there's no harm in what they did, I, I don't think. Oh, no. No, there's, no, there's nothing that, that d- d- um, injures the process, or, I mean, it's, I suppose it As delayed fact, it for it, a few it, days. If you're a bidder in the RFP, it was probably helpful, because now you're aware that there is a collective agreement with possible successor rights. So now you'll be able to include that uh, in your bid as you're moving forward. Up till now, Metrolinks did not inform the bidders of that particular situation. Um, even though the city of Hamilton and councillors had asked many questions about it, it was not there. So I have to give them credit. They did push it onto to the public screen, and the bidders are now aware, and there's full disclosure. Uh, but it was an awfully long meeting to get to make a decision that really was not a decision because there was no authority to bind anyone. And you have the, you've been in the unique position where you have sat around the council table, but also you've sat around the meetings at Queen's Park as part of uh, the government. And I'm wondering, when a city comes forward with a thing like this, where they have no, they don't have any weight behind it necessarily, because legally they're not on any kind of ground. It's just, we really, we really, really, really want you to do this. How much weight does that carry? I mean, does, does, does generally, and I know every government's different, but would they look at it and say, all right, we got to go out of our way to try to do this for them? Or do they say, we're going to, if it fits in with what we have planned, fine, but we're not going to bend our backs to make this happen? Yeah, so the, the government, the Minister of Transportation and the Minister of Labor would look at the letter. Um, they would immediately recognize that there is already uh, the Labor Relations Act in Ontario, which actually handles this particular situation. Um, they would recognize that the municipality has no authority over Metrolinx and no authority over the provincial government, and they would respond with a stock letter that says, thank you very much for uh, providing us with your opinion. Uh, we'll take it into consideration, and we forwarded the information to Metrolinx. But there's no weight to it because there's no legal weight to right, it. Right, right. Well, political. 
Silly season indeed. I'm sure, Brad, you and I will be chatting about silly season again. You're going to be our go-to guy for silly season for between now and the election because you're the, well, I don't want to say you're the expert on that. That would say you were the king of the silly season, but... Uh, <laughs> well, don't go there. No, I, maybe, maybe we'll find an example. <laughs> no, that's, uh, but listen, it is, uh, I think we've, we've started to understand what Brad has been talking about when he said this. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. The United States appears to be on the precipice of a major change to its tax code, which on its face probably is about as exciting as watching grass grow to most people. We're changing the tax code, woo uh, But there's something to this that is going to make you want to listen to this. Because whether you're a fan of Donald Trump or the Republicans or the government or the states or whomever or not, this tax change appears to be poised to be benefiting a lot of businesses south of the border by reducing taxes on new equipment and allowing companies to invest in their business at a lower cost. And a national a piece in the National Post today talking about this says this is going to, as a result, have a major spillover impact onto Canada's economy. Because if it gets more inviting to do business south of the border, if it's cheaper, if it's easier and we don't do some things to match it, or at least to make ourselves competitive, companies may be enticed to go south. If we decide to just let the Americans, whether you like these or not, it's the reality. It seems it's going to be the reality. If we don't do anything, we could be opening the door to have some of our industries heading there because it's more lucrative. Well, here, as he always is, to break down matters of economics and complications, because uh, he is the man who can explain these in a way that few others can. Marvin Ryder of the DeGroote School of Business. Sir, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. Uh, You agree with that premise, that this could have significant implications for Canada? So the key word in that sentence you just said was the word could. Uh, It could, absolutely it could. Now, let me just give you a state of where we are. This afternoon, the House of Representatives passed this tax reform bill. It's heading to the Senate tonight. The keystone aspect of this bill is the reduction in uh, corporate taxes from an effective rate today of around 39% down to, when you include the state taxes, around 26%. Right now in Canada, and it depends upon the province you're in, but in this area, in Ontario, your effective rate in Canada is 26.7%. So, okay, you're going to pay a little bit more tax in Ontario when the dust settles on this. By the way, they approve it today. It starts to happen next year, but we really don't get to the 26% rate until 2019 or 2020. It's phased in a bit. Well, does that mean for 0.7 of a percent people are going to run south of the border? No, they're not going to do it for 0.7%. And the other reason they're not going to do it is nobody ever pays the marginal rate. You pay these nice people called accountants a ton of money to make sure you minimize the tax you pay wherever it is you're doing business. No one ever really pays the marginal rate. But the key is, for the last 31 years since 1986, the United States has been less competitive on the tax front, and now they're going to be pretty much equal up with us here in Canada so now the question is, then where will or will those investment dollars go? Before, we saw American companies saying, well, let's at least try to earn more of our money in Canada or establish an operation in Canada because we can benefit, we can keep more of our money by claiming the profit in Canada. That incentive is going away. On its own, that's not the problem. The problem is a second part of this tax reform bill that you alluded to, which talks about uh, new investment. Today... If I buy uh, or create a plant or buy some new equipment, 
what we typically do is let you amortize the cost of that equipment over a few years. We sometimes call that a capital cost allowance, or sometimes we call it depreciation. So over five years, you can write off the cost of the equipment. And to be nice, we'll even let you accelerate, so you'll write off a little bit more in year one than ultimately you'll write off in year five, and you can write that off against your profit, again, keeping more money. The United States has decided to get rid of this whole amortization thing and let you write it off right from the beginning. So if I spend $100 million on equipment, I'm not going to get the tax advantage spread over five years. I'm going to get the full tax advantage in year one. And that's what's got us a little more worried. It isn't really about the corporate tax rate, but where will that next investment dollar get spent? And if I can write off the investment faster by spending in the United States, the temptation might be then to grow the American at a faster rate than I can here in Canada. Well, let's use, I mean, let's say Marvin Ryder Enterprises that builds, we always call them, well, widgets is always the fallback whenever we need something. So your company makes widgets and you now have the opportunity to upgrade right away that you can put your money into this and get a tax break for it so you don't have to stretch it out over a period of time. As, as someone who understands economics, does that not make it, as you've alluded to, very enticing to at least consider that? Absolutely, absolutely. So this is what our concern is. It isn't so much that companies are going to pack up and go south of the border chasing that 0.7% savings, because again, you get good accounts, you can make that part go away. It is where am I going to spend the next dollars? And remember, we want companies to grow and prosper, to, to spend their money and, and to, to buy new equipment. So that part concerns us. There's one other thing that, that concerns us, and that is, um, and it's bothered many presidents, not just President Trump, but President Obama, going back even to President Bush, George W. Bush, that many companies make their money in foreign jurisdictions and then leave their money in those foreign jurisdictions because if they bring it home, they have to pay an additional tax when they try to repatriate the money. So another thing that the Trump tax plan does is allow them to bring that money back and not pay the big sizable penalty they did before. So here you've got a combination of, if I want to make the investment in the United States and use my European dollars to do that, oh, well, I'm always going to pay a, a big penalty. Now I can bring the European dollars back in, not pay the penalty, and B, when I go to make the investment, I can write it off faster. So therefore, I'm more interested in doing that. We think his whole plan is about stimulating the American economy really at the expense of investment in other parts of the world. So as their next-door neighbor and someone who's got that nice symbiotic relationship, we have to be concerned. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Continuing our conversation with Marvin Ryder about the new U.S. tax changes that will probably, possibly have some spillover effect on Canada. Before the break, Marvin, you were just talking about our finance minister, uh, Mr. Mer- uh, what he'll be doing about this, Mr. Morneau, and what he'll be doing or possibly should be doing to counteract this. Right. So we are going to be heading into our budget season in March and April, both provincially with Minister Souza and then federally with Minister Morneau. And I'll say this, the good news is that both of those budgets are looking a lot better than they did just 12 months ago. We've had a lot of nice growth in Canada, more revenues So it does give these finance ministers a little chance to try to counteract this. I don't think they're going to play too much with the marginal tax rate. They've already done some things to reduce the cost for small business people, and that's something unique to Canada. In the United States, they don't have a small business tax rate that is separate 
from the corporate tax rate. So we're giving entrepreneurs a bit of a benefit already, but I think they're going to play with this question of investment, either find some tax credits or, again, accelerated ways to write off in those kinds of investments to try to even the playing field. You don't really want to race to the bottom. You don't want to say to businesses, well, you know, if he cuts your rate to 26%, I'll go to 24 and then you get this race to zero. That's not good because we need some revenues from those businesses to carry on. But I am sure in the spring there will be a few little sweeteners just to say to the business community, we care about you and we still want to see those investments. And while we don't want to race to the zero, by the same or by the reverse of that, this does put the federal government and possibly some of the provinces in a slight bit of a bind because it makes it more difficult for them. They may say, we want to come down a little harder on corporations. We want to have a little stiffer taxes to raise more money. That becomes more difficult to do now, doesn't it? Absolutely. And now I will also say this, though. We think this plan that's being passed by the Republicans is a bit of a potential disaster for the American government, but they're not going to see it for four or five years. What's the disaster? this major cut in tax rates is going to cut the revenues. And the gamble on the Republicans is that once these companies have more money in their coffers, they're going to turn around and make all of these investments and grow the economy at a fast rate. So the speed of growth is going to more than offset for what you lose from the taxes. It's a gamble we've seen played before. 86 should be a year that rings in people's minds because that was under the Reagan administration. Mr. Reagan was a big believer, called it Reaganomics, or the trickle-down effect. Give tax breaks to the wealthy and to the corporations, and they'll suddenly invest. We don't always see that happening, and it's quite possible that instead they're going to cut their revenues and start running bigger and bigger deficits. But that will be four years, five years down the road, and by that time maybe there will be another president in the White House. It is, uh, let me put this right to you, nobody, very few people up here like to even entertain the notion that Donald Trump might ever do something right or something that uh, benefits anybody other than himself. I, we, un- we know that's the position most people take. Right. However, he did come into office saying, America first, I'm going to look after America first and I'm going to grow our economy. Do we have to grudgingly give a little credit to him to say possibly this is one of those moves that could do that? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I have to say that he's finally got something done. Now, mind you, this year, 2017, has been a year characterized much more by setbacks than victories. These tax cuts were actually supposed to have been passed in February and March of 2017 and they got bogged down, then they went on to health care, and they got bogged down. And I think really the pressure, uh, the reason why this is going to happen tonight when the Senate approves it, is that in about five months they're going to stop talking about this stuff and start talking about midterm elections. That's when all the House and one-third of the senators are up for election. And you've got to go into that election saying, this is what I've accomplished as president. To date, it's actually a rather poor uh, uh, chalkboard, if you will, of victories. He's only got the Supreme Court justice Uh, Justice Gorsuch put onto the Supreme Court. That's the only accomplishment he had. I think everyone realized they'd better have something ready for the midterms, and that's what they're going. And everyone loves the concept of tax cuts south of the border. Now, again, will it have the stimulating effect he wants? We just don't know. There are arguments on both sides, but it will take four or five years. Meantime, he can go to the public and say, this is what I did now that you elected me president. 
There is one other thing to this, and it goes to what you were talking about a couple of minutes ago, and that is the fact that you can now bring money back from foreign countries where you may have it stashed away if you're a company. And there are suggestions that if all this money starts coming back and gets invested, it is going to prop up the American dollar, that the, the American dollar will get much, much stronger. Does that necessarily then mean that the loonie is going to drop? Yes. <laughs> the short answer is yes, if all of that happens now. That, again, isn't the end of the world. Uh, I know citizens at large love to see a par dollar, love to see the Canadian dollar be equal to the American dollar. Right now we are flirting with 78 cents or so U.S. But really, uh, you know, if it, the Canadian dollar fell to 75 or 72, that wouldn't be the end of the world. And remember, we don't just trade with the United States. We trade with other countries around the world. So if their dollar gets stronger, fewer people are going to actually be able to afford American goods they're going to be looking for other alternatives. It could actually help us in the long run, even if it hurts the snowbirds and those international travelers. And that's one of those funny things, again, about the economy. What's good for you and I as individuals is not always the best thing for our economy. We only have 20 seconds, but if this passes tonight, if it goes through the Senate tonight and this passes, yeah. would you expect that the loonie would drop immediately on speculation of what's going to happen? No, no, not immediately, but there will be pressure over the next year to see this, and we'll see other little declines as it goes. But no, I was looking to see today, and there really was virtual no reaction to the approval of the House this afternoon. So no, I don't think there'll be any big fall, but just gradual pressure over the year ahead. So if you're a snowbird, if you want to travel, uh, maybe grab some money now before it goes down? Grab money whenever you like the rate. It will bounce around a little bit on every day, depending upon the price of oil, much more so than Donald Trump. If you happen to see a little rally in oil, the Canadian dollar goes up a little bit. Grab it right then when you can. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Always appreciate the time, sir. Thank you for this. My pleasure, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Let me ask you a question. I apologize because this is going to maybe start causing the stomach to start grumbling. You might hear a Wow. Partway through because you're now getting really hungry because we're going to talk about food for a couple of minutes. What is the Canadian food? I mean, Americans would argue they've got hamburgers and hot dogs and apple pie. Go elsewhere. Every, every place has its food, right? Every country just about has its food. We struggle with that a little bit. Canadians, I mean, maple syrup. Yeah, we have maple syrup. We have beer, we have a few other things, but on that list, I'm thinking many people are going to throw poutine. Poutine is the Canadian food. You go around the world, poutine is the Canadian food. Depends how you want to pronounce it too. It's either poutine or patin or poutine or something in the middle there. There's various different pronunciations of it, but you know what I'm getting at. French fries with cheese curds and gravy and under different iterations of it now, all kinds of stuff you can throw on there. There's pulled pork poutine and whatever else. But if you go to various places now, the perception is, the thought is, poutine is the Canadian food, period. Except there now are many, the story goes, the reporting goes, there are many in Quebec taking great umbrage with this. This is not the Canadian food. You people outside of Quebec have purloined our food. This is the Quebecois food. 
Poutine is the Quebecois food, not the Canadian food. You folks in Alberta, you in Saskatchewan, you in Nova Scotia, you in Ontario especially, this is not your food. This is our food. This is not the Canadian food. This is the Quebec food. Well, what do you think about that? Can we... See, I thought even though... Even though we understand we have the whole distinct society thing and we understand that Quebec is a different province from many other places in Canada, although I would argue that it may not be quite as different as they would like to believe, especially when you consider if you go to Alberta or Regina, it's a lot different from Ontario or a lot different from there. We're all different. We all have our great differences. Language, I understand, is uniquely different, but we all have differences. We're not, we're not all one homogenous country, but we all consider ourselves that. So do we actually, is there a Canadian food or do do the people in Quebec who are taking umbrage with this now have the right to say, no, 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 no. Anytime you're talking about poutine, let's not make a mistake here and say it's Canadian. Let's not say it's the Canadian food. This is the Quebec food. You go find something else that you like of your own. Go tell the world that Killaloo beaver tails are your food or I don't know. What what else do we have? What else is the, I don't even know what else would be the real Canadian dish that you would have. Again, most of the, most of the things, you know, interestingly, most of the, uh, most of the stuff that would be considered the real Canadian food or a lot of it is from Quebec, which is. You know, we got the cheese soup. Have you ever had the, like the heavy, the French pea soup? Well, that's kind of considered Quebec food. I just don't understand how we've gotten to this point again, because I thought we were kind of past it. And maybe that's being very naive and maybe that's being hopeful and not realistic. But I had hoped that we've moved past now the, for the most part, the separatist movement. We've moved past the us versus them for the most part with Quebec, I think, I think. So Quebec is part of us. We're part of them. I didn't know that we actually now had to take a stand on the things that are ours and and theirs. And it's kind of disappointing to me. It really is that we cannot in the States, like in the States is not utopia. Let's not be fooling ourselves here. No one is going to argue that the United States is utopia, but nobody, I don't think down there says, no, you can't say the cheeseburger is your food. It was our food. I suppose things like Philly cheesesteaks, maybe, maybe Philly cheesesteaks, you could argue, but that's got the name right in it. We don't call it Quebec poutine. Ben just whispered in my ear, pea meal bacon, back bacon. Well, that back bacon kind of for a while, in the in the 70s and 80s, when Bob and Doug McKenzie and SCTV, you know, that one, that, yeah, that was a big, back bacon was a big Canadian thing because that was, that was, they were telling everybody that was, but I mean, has anybody actually thought of Bob and Doug McKenzie and back bacon in the last 15 years? I don't think so. This part about this isn't that we have poutine or isn't that Quebec people think it's their food, not ours, although that's part of it. Again, what gets me about this is I thought we had kind of gotten past the idea that it was us versus them in this country, but apparently not entirely. Apparently still we are going to be protective of things that come from our region, especially if it's, I guess, from certain regions. 
So the answer is, don't pronounce it putin or poutine. Say poutine and make sure that it, you know, that'll drive everybody nuts, I'm sure. But I just think it's a Canadian dish. If it's from Canada, if it's from a part of Canada, it's Canadian. Radley at 900CHML.com if you have a different idea or if you have a different food that we should be concentrating on as the Canadian food instead of this one. I'm open to suggestions and I am starving, so I'd like to hear about it. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 only on 900CHML. Mike Babcock, head coach of the Toronto Maple Leafs, was asked a question about kids hockey. There are plans, there are discussions about changing how things are done. We know that in soccer in this province already, they're talking about, or they have already taken out the idea of keeping score in kids' games. They just want to make it fun. So Mike Babcock was asked about keeping score in kids' hockey. And his answer was, and this is his quote, I like keeping score because life is about keeping score, no matter what. Well, there are differing opinions on this. Some people, and I will admit that I fall into this category, believe there's no harm in keeping score. Done right. There is a little caveat. There's a little asterisk. Done right. There's no harm in keeping score on its face. Others would argue that keeping score takes away from the fun of the game because it makes it unnecessarily competitive and some of the kids' enjoyment will be taken away when they lose. Well, my next guest... I know she has an opinion on this. Uh, Sunaya, um, pardon me, Sunaya Sapurji is the managing editor, assistant managing editor at The Athletic. She joins me now. Thank you for doing this tonight. Oh, no problem, Scott. My pleasure. Um, you have just written a series uh, about growing the game again in this province, in this country. And what are your thoughts on this? Am I correct that you fall into the no score is a better idea than keeping score? No, you know what, I don't have a problem with keeping score as long as the focus, I think, is on development instead of wins and, and losses. Um, and I think sometimes um, in this country that gets skewed a little bit, particularly at the minor hockey level. So I don't actually have a problem with keeping score or standings, like I said, as long as the focus is, is on skill building and development rather than winning and losing. And I think the other thing to keep in mind here is as long as it's age appropriate, um, you know, one of the, the stories uh, I wrote for, for my series was looking at uh, Sweden. Um, so it's, it's basically a, a seven-part series looking at development, uh, hockey development in five different countries. And one of them was Sweden. And one of the things Sweden did recently was they got rid of, of standings for um, the age group of, of 13 and under. So they keep scores during the games, but once the game is over, there's no standings, there are no um, individual stats, so no scoring leaders, um, nothing like that for, for any of their, their leagues or for their tournaments. And that was quite controversial there as well. But that, um, see, that that to me has the ring of exactly what we should be trying to do. That that to me is the basically the perfect answer. We're going to keep score because, look, even if we don't keep score on the scoreboard, the kids are not morons. The kids know what the score is. I remember when my son was five years old and playing half ice, they all knew the score by the end of the game, even though I had lost track. A hundred percent, and I agree with that. And, and I think the thing... Um, we have to realize is that this is for the kids. So mm. if the kids want to keep score, then that's fine. But, you know, um, 
when I was doing this series, I, I had parents sending me messages on Twitter saying, like, there are parents that will keep detailed stats. <laughs> you know, I know. Minor, you know, like, we're talking about five- and six-year-olds um, from the stands. And to me, I think that's, that's crazy. Uh, I mean, I, I think that, that as long as we keep perspective and remember that this is for the kids, and their enjoyment, and if they want to keep score, that's fine. I don't think anyone has a has a problem uh, with that. But I think when when you know the parents get involved, I think sometimes it gets a little skewed. Well, and you know, I mean, there's other points to this. I mean, you are. I think you're bang on on a lot of these things. I have talked to coaches who will tell me that they have coached the championship winning team for you know eight-year-olds or nine-year-olds for four consecutive years and it's like really like that's on your resume that you coach the house league novice team to four consecutive championships well done i mean way to go i'm sure the leafs will be calling when mike babcock runs into trouble that that's a that's something you really want to be highlighting yeah and i mean that that again it's it's that focus on winning versus skill development and i think if you look at what Countries like Finland and Sweden are doing. Um, they have their their base for for you know their registered players is is just a fraction of what we have in Canada. But they're able to compete, um, you know, at the Olympics, at, at the World Juniors, uh, at an interna- high international level, because they've they've got this focus on development rather than winning. And of course, you know, they're system is totally different because they've got the European club model, which makes it a little easier for them, you know, whereas, whereas here in Canada, you know, we've got the minor hockey system, and then if you want extra uh, coaching or whatever, you have to go outside of that system, so that kind of makes it a bit tricky for for parents, and that kind of, you know, secondary uh, economy of, of coaching has kind of taken on a, a life of its own oh, yeah. in terms of, of what's available you know, I mean, I've seen elite programs for, for four-year-olds. I mean, th- is that really necessary? Or are we really going to go down that path? But I mean, I... I there but we have. Who, yeah, there are people who are willing to, to pay for it. So, so what, yeah. what strikes me about this, um, Sanaya, what really strikes me about this whole thing is that while, again, while I'm in favor of keeping score of games, and I think the idea of not having standings takes away the necessity to have to win those games. You don't have to win. You want to win. It would be nice to win, but you, who cares if you don't? What strikes me about this is, this is not a kid problem. This is not a hockey problem. This is just an idiotic adult problem. And frankly, I've coached, I've made mistakes that way. Anyone who's been involved in the game, as adults, we've made a mess of this. It's not the kids, it's not the game itself. There's nothing wrong about hockey that makes it necessarily or or naturally ridiculous this way. We've screwed this up. Oh, 100%. And I I don't actually think it's it's just a hockey problem. If you look at other sports, you know... um, uh, baseball in the U.S. or or football, uh, you know, they they have these same kind of of problems too. But yeah, I mean, once again, when you lose perspective, it, it's got to be about the kids first and their enjoyment and their development. Um, you know, it shouldn't be about you know trying to get a scholarship mm. or um, you know make it to the OHL or, or get you know some kind of CHL scholarship or 
or make it to the NHL. That shouldn't be the end goal. But I, I think the way people are thinking about it now, and I, I don't really know when this when this kind of, of changed. I was just going to ask you that. I was just going to ask you that when this happened, because I don't think this was always the case. No, no, I don't think so either. And I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure when um, when this happened. But I mean, I, I think you're seeing it way more than than you used to. Mm-hmm. Um, this kind of, of race. Um, and and you know parents trying to to keep up with the Joneses so to mm-hmm. speak, um, but it, it seems like it's it's gotten out of control. And you know one of the the last part of my series was um, a Q and A with with Tom Rennie, and and this is one of the things we we talked about was how do you change this culture now that has become like this where it is a race to to get to. Um, the NHL or, or, you know, to, to send your, your daughter to the Canadian Olympic team. Um, and I, I don't know. I think it's, it's just gone off the rails uh, now, and I don't know how you bring it back. I, I'm with you. I don't know exactly when this happened. I know when I was a kid playing, the parents were not maniacs. At least that's my recollection of it. They sat in the stands and they cheered for us, and that was what they did. But my best guess, the best thing I can think of for this is and I don't know if this is right, when salaries, professional salaries, and the cost of playing hockey both simultaneously skyrocketed, parents now, it became less about a diversion and more about an investment. I'm going to spend all this money to invest in my kid, and maybe you said a scholarship. Maybe they'll get a scholarship. Maybe they'll go to the OHL. Maybe they'll go to the NHL. I can put this money in, and now it was an investment in a long-term goal for my child as opposed to something they did on a Saturday morning. Yeah, I agree with that. And I mean, the, the other thing is, is how much of it now is unstructured versus structured Great, play? great question. You know, um, how, how much, like, at least on, on my street when I was growing up, I would see kids playing ball hockey all the time uh, or street hockey all the time. And now... I, I hardly see anyone, and I know at least where, where I live in, in Toronto, um, a lot of playing ball hockey is prohibited. So, um, you know, I, it's, it's also a, a question of, of how kids are sp- spending their free time. And, you know, um, I think it's important, at least from all the people I've spoken to in terms of, of development, and that's, that's having unstructured play as well. Oh, how many, uh, it's, a, it's a terrific point, because how many rinks right now, and because there's so much demand for ice time, but how many rinks have a couple hours a day, for example, where it's just, hey, if you want to show up and play, go ahead. And part of the problem with that is even if you did it, half or more of the people who would be on that rink are the kids who are already on the ice 17 hours a week, because their dad or mom would say, yo, you need more skating time, go uh, go work on your skills, and then the, the poor kids that don't play much who are out there just for fun, they just get lost. Yeah, I, I mean uh, that's that's another problem unto itself is is the cost of of ice time, um, at least here in the in the GTA. Like, I mean that is a huge that's a huge chunk of your registration fees just going to ice time. So, I, I mean, if if you look at when you know times are available, um, you know if if you want that free time, that free skate time, it's probably going to be like really 
either really late at night or really early in the morning. And and how many people want to get out of bed to to do that? Yeah, you want your eight-year-old skating at the rink in the free time from 11 till 1 (laughs) a.m. Yeah, well, forget school. Who cares about school? We need that extra skate. But let's go back to where this started, though, because this was about the whole concept that when Mike Babcock today, and or I think it was today, but anyway, when he said this thing about, I, I believe in keeping score, and you've said, and I said, I, the score to me is not the issue. Keeping score in a game, the kids are going to know who won. And frankly, I don't know if you share this view. I think there's actually great value in learning how to win and also in sports learning how to lose. There's nothing wrong with leaving the rink or the diamond or the park or whatever having lost the game and having to learn how to deal with that. That doesn't, to me, seem to be the problem. Yeah, no, and I, I think that those are, are really important life lessons um, that you can learn through sport. Um, but again, I think it's got to be age-appropriate, you know. Um, and, you know, if, if, it's, if it's like uh, 12 or 13-year-old kids um, who have to take you know, losses, then, then that's fine. But I don't really know, you know, what a, what a four or five year old is really going to get out of, out of wins and, and losses, even though I, I, I think it's, it's important to, to keep score. Yeah. I, I have, I believe very strongly that there is one, there is one goal that a kid scores that you need to remember and make a big deal about. And that is the first one they ever get. And that, yeah. and after that, once a kid is five years old and they've scored their first goal and you grab that puck and you take it off the ice and you put a piece of tape around it or you, whatever you do to mark that kid's first goal, after that, who cares? Who cares? If your kid scores nine goals in a game because he's an advanced skater and the other kids are lying on the ice like newborn fawns who can't stand up, who cares if they scored eight goals? What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the thing. I mean... Um, the, the kind of the issue I had with Mike Babcock's statement was the fact that that we often put our adult values on on children's sports, and I think that's that's really dangerous to to do because it should be about you know um, teaching kids um, lessons through sports and not necessarily about winning or losing or making the NHL or you know being being, you know, the, the top scorer at, at six years old. I think there are better things that kids could be learning from, from hockey. Here's the tricky thing. Before we got a couple of minutes left here. Here's the really tricky part for me is this is easy, I think. I think it's pretty easy to do in house league. If we want to say, okay, in house league, it's going to be equal ice time and blah, blah, blah. It's all going to be fair. I think most people are going to buy into that and that's fine. But as soon as you start getting seven, eight, nine into rep hockey, even if the coach decides I am going to play that way, I'm going to coach that way, there is going to be on a lot of teams blowback from a parent or parents that you're not coaching competitively enough for my kids. So even if the coach has the complete right attitude, it's still going to be a challenge at times. Yeah, and I mean, once again, that's the, the parents interjecting themselves into, into you know, their kids' sport and their kids' enjoyment. And I, I think the thing we have to be worried about is, uh, at least as far as Hockey Canada is concerned, is, is retention rates. Um, because you you see a lot of kids dropping out at these younger ages, preteen ages. Why? Because it's not fun anymore. 
Why? Because, you know, of burnout, um, you know, be- because there's too much pressure, um, you know, to, to be good because parents have invested so much time and money in into um, this. And it becomes almost like a, a job instead of you know, being something that is done for fun. Uh, you're you're bang on, and uh, uh, listen. I, your your view, I think, is absolutely correct. This is not. Uh, again, I go back to my point. This is not a hockey problem. This is an adult problem, messing up kids in this sport. It should be for development. It should be for fun. And you know, uh, you can read Sonia's series. It's on the Athletic. Go to the Athletic. If you don't know the Athletic, you should go to the Athletic. It is an online sports magazine, publication, I don't know exactly, website, whatever you want to call it. And you can actually sign up and get it, or you can get a free sample of it, and you can read her stuff. It's a great series. Sonia, thanks for doing this tonight. Really appreciate it. Oh, no problem, Scott. Anytime. It is, uh, it is a huge issue that we face, and this is with all kids' sports. And, and for the record, for the record, lest anyone think that I am standing on a lofty pedestal of greatness, speaking to the people as someone who has never messed up with this. I coached rep hockey and I assure you that there were a couple times that if I could turn back the clock and go and undo those things, as far as being a little too competitive at times, I would do it in a second. I, if I ever went and coached again, the lessons that I, that I now, there are things that I would never do. Now we're not talking about horrible things done to kids. We're talking about, at one moment or another being a little too competitive and double shifting kids and leaving other kids sitting on the bench. And it's not something, it's something that is so easy to do. It is so easy to get caught up even with kids sports. It is so easy. And it's not something I'm proud of. As I say, I wish I could undo it. I wish that I could go back of anything that I've done working with kids in sports. There are a couple moments that I look back and go, man, I wish I could take those kids off the ice that I double shifted and put the other kids on who didn't get to play. And I can, I can actually tell you, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to embarrass them. I can tell you who the kids were that I did not have play a couple shifts. And I, to this day, I feel terrible about it. And I'm thinking, I wish I had actually known what I know now, felt what I feel now while I was coaching. The problem is it's very, very easy to get wrapped up. It's very easy to get caught up in the competitiveness and again, it's not about winning a game. Keeping score, I think, is a good thing. It's about the standings. It's about the tournaments. It's about a lot of other things. Not every coach is going to make the same mistakes I did, and that's that's a good thing. They may make other ones. They may make worse ones. They may not make mistakes, but it is uh, it is something that I really do think that it is an important topic for kids' sports, not hockey alone, any kids' sports in this country that we work on remembering that adults by and large are the cause of essentially every single problem in kids sports. None of the problems in kids sports. Tell me the one that is caused by kids. None of them. All the problems in kids sports are the result of adults being idiots. Myself included at times. The Scott Radley show. The Scott Radley show. Weeknights from six to eight on 900 CHML.